We're continuing our journey through the book of Acts this summer, and uh, we find ourselves in Acts 19 today. We're going to be reading from verses 23 through to the end of chapter 19. And so I'd invite you uh, to stand for the reading of, our, of the word today. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, uh, sent him a message begging him not to venture into this theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. And the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls they can press charges. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Last week, we engaged this theme of idolatry. And when Paul was in Athens, he noticed that the city was flooded with idols, and they even had an idol to an unknown god, which suggested to Paul that they were still looking for something more. These idols that they had turned to were letting them down. And today, I, I want to revisit this theme and go a little bit deeper in engaging how we go about dismantling the idols in our hearts. Because as we see in this scene, when we begin this process of saying no to some of the counterfeit gods in our lives, they're going to start to push back. And it's not an easy process of smashing, of dismantling these idols. So I want to re-engage this theme today and look at how we might dismantle some of those false gods 
that are coming up short for us. Now, as a matter of review, I, I mentioned how this word idolatry is sometimes hard for us to get our heads around as modern people. We don't literally worship ancient gods and bow down before them and offer sacrifices to weird statues, except, as I mentioned last week, we kind of do that with, like, the Stanley Cup and the Super Bowl. (laughs) It's like literal idolatry, kissing the statue. But for most of us, idolatry is expressed in a more subtle way. The Scripture talks about idols being located in our hearts, and Paul says things like coveting the things of our neighbors as an idol. And so the definition I held up last week is that an idol is anything that you turn to to replace God in your life. The things that you love, the things that you trust, the things that you obey. We can turn all kinds of things into idols. We can even turn good things into idols, but they cross the line from a good thing to an idol when they become an ultimate thing. Having good finances can be a good thing, but it becomes an idol when it's like all I live for. That's what determines my values, what I get up doing in the morning, right? Relationships can be a good thing, but they become an idol when I can't live without that that other person. That romantic partner is my salvation, and without it I'm nothing. That's when we cross the line to idolatry. I want to engage this theme about how we dismantle these idols. And I notice in this text a few things that I think help us in this journey, this journey of dismantling our idols. And the first thing I want to highlight for us is that I think our capacity to dismantle these false gods requires us to first expect that there will be pushback. We need to prepare for that, expect that there will be pushback. Now, we we see this in in our text today. The idol makers are going out of business, and they begin to resist the followers of the way, it says, the, the, the Christians. They resist Paul's message, saying there is a danger here, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis will be discredited. We see the resistance, the pushback to Paul's message. A message that appears to have gained a lot of traction to the point that it's putting these idol makers out of business. I want to suggest to us that as we go about this process of turning away from these false gods, we're going to face resistance. And it's important to expect that. Because otherwise, I think we can get discouraged on the spiritual journey, think that maybe we've made a mistake when people are upset with us, or when it gets really hard, we wonder whether it's worth continuing to push forward. We need to have this proper expectation that our idols are going to start to push back. I think we can see this on a social level, and we can see this in a personal level. For Paul, the the pushback is coming from society. The ways of Jesus are confronting the values of society. And I think we need to be on the lookout for the ways that 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 can play itself out in, in our world today. That there will be resistance to the way of Jesus. Now, the presenting idol in our text today is this idol of wealth and money. As kind of cloaked as caring about civil order and, and religious zeal. This is what John Stott says. The vested interests were disguised as local patriotism and religious zeal. 
But underneath that, we see that the big problem is they're going out of business. And this whole Christian thing is bad for the bottom line. Can we maybe be aware of how that plays out in our hearts and in our societies today? And this might mean some of you who are trying to navigate the business world as, as a Christian. But there are times where following the way of Jesus might call us to make some hard decisions that we'll get some pushback from. Maybe instead of acting unethically for the sake of more profit, we might step into the gap and say, no, as a Christian, I think we need to be paying our employees fairly, or we need to avoid business practices that exploit people. We need to pay our taxes. I have some business friends that that's been a hard place to step into. It's confronting the God of the bottom line by following the way. You might be on the lookout for that. I had a minor experience of this, but down in Longview, I was involved with a number of local pastors to try and create a cold weather shelter in the winter. And there was about 20 or 30 days a year where it got really cold, and so we were trying to find space to help vulnerable people get out of the cold. And I learned a lot about just the dynamics of doing that, but it was interesting that there was often so much pushback and it often was under the, the issue of this is bad for business. <laughs> when one year, we, uh, we found a great place next to a recycling center. Out of, you know, it wasn't next to schools. It wasn't uh, next to a lot of businesses. But even there, it was almost like a riot started in the city hall because we don't want these people in our town. Right? It was one of those examples where following the way of Jesus was confronting these values of society. And it's just important for us to be on the lookout and not to be discouraged when we face that resistance. That's part of following the way. We need to expect that. Sometimes following Jesus is going to set off a riot on the grand scale. But also, I think we can apply this on a personal level. On a personal level. When we start to say no to something that has become an ultimate thing in our heart, there is going to be resistance. I'm reading a book by Gerard May right now called Addiction and Grace. It's a classic book, just understanding issues of addictions. And, and he just talks about, as a doctor, the process of withdrawal when we say no to something that has a major grip on us at a substance level. And it's as if there's almost a riot even at the cellular level. Our body says, no, no, don't take that away from me, right? This is something that I am trusting in. And so when we start to dismantle the idol, there is pushback. And in fact, that actually helps us discern whether something has become an idol. If something is just a good thing and we take it away, we might be a little bit sad. But when we take away an ultimate thing, there's going to be a riot. <laughs> Don't take away this from me. This is what I trust in. We need to be aware of that. Expect that so that we can be prepared to dismantle these idols. The second thing I notice in this text that I think helps us in this process of dismantling these false gods is that we need to expose the lie that the idols are telling us. Expose the false promises behind these counterfeit gods. Now, there's a, an interesting detail at the end of this text, and commentators have really struggled to understand what Luke is doing in this story. 
most of the narratives and acts end with Paul or Peter doing a sermon and, and kind of pointing people back to Jesus. But this story ends in a different way, a very unique way, where it's the city clerk who's just summoned to come and, and stop the riot. And a lot of commentators wonder, like, what is, uh, what is Luke trying to communicate here? Now, some people have tried to preach this and apply this by saying, well, this city clerk gives us some good wisdom about how to de-escalate conflict. And that could be a way you could preach the sermon, and there's probably some wisdom there. But I think Luke is doing something much more subversive in telling this story. He's making a point in the telling of this story. And this is uh, what Timothy Keller notices. He says that the idol of Artemis promised social order, but it ended up creating social disruption. The idol produced the opposite of what it promised. This is what we see illustrated at the end of the story. Remember, at the beginning of the story, the businessman said, Paul and his companions are disrupting society. They're bad for business, and so we need to shut them down. But at the end, in their battle to preserve their idol, they are the ones that end up disrupting society. Notice what we read. We are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. That's what the, the clerk says at the end of the story. So a number of commentators notice this. Luke, Luke is being subversive. He's saying, look at these people who are protecting their idol. They're saying we're for social order, but their commitment to the idol is actually leading to social disruption. An idol produces the opposite effect in our life. It promises something good, but then it leads to the opposite effect or a negative effect. And part of the dismantling process requires us to expose the lie. To expose the lie. And I wonder if we can notice that in our own experience where some of the the false gods that we have turned to have actually turned on us at times. I read an article uh, this week by a lady named Erin Callan. And she was the former CFO of the Lehman Brothers, just big-time finance uh, leader. And in this article, it was actually in the New York Times, and it was titled, Is There Life After Work? And in the article, she said that her initial goal was this. I was going to enter this workforce, and for 20 years, I was going to just make a boatload of money. And I was going to give all I could to money. And then after that, I'd have 20 years where I could do whatever I want. This was my ticket to freedom. This was my ticket to the good life. So she had this contract with with work. But notice what she says. She ended up uh, stepping away from work. And and she, she mentioned this. Inevitably, when I left my job, it devastated me. I couldn't just rally and move on. I did not know how to value who I was versus what I did, for what I did was who I was. I I notice in this story an example of an idol turning on us. This was the promise to the good life. This was giving me identity, purpose, security, and money. But eventually it ended up taking, taking over in her life such that she had no identity apart from that work. She couldn't actually enjoy life apart from the addiction to success. And so the idol turned on her. It had the opposite effect. Rather than leading to freedom, it led to slavery. 
I wonder if we can notice that in maybe some of the other false promises, false gods that we turn to. You know, if we make achievement our God, if that's what gives us meaning and credibility and help us, helps us feel good about ourselves, we're going to get stuck in a cycle of always having to do more and more to prove our worth. And the idol starts to turn on us. If we make a relationship our Savior, what happens when the relationship doesn't work out or a spouse passes away? If we make money our God, there's this danger of always feeling like we don't have enough. Can we expose the lie that the idol will have the opposite effect on us? We need to have that awareness so that we can begin this process of breaking free, of dismantling the idol. Now, to this point, I've, I mainly just named the problem again, and I haven't really gotten into to, to the depth of how we dismantle. And so what I want to notice now is once we've exposed the lie, what do we do? How do we move forward? How do we move forward? I, I notice a, a couple of things. And the, the first thing I want to highlight in this story is that Paul's battle with these idols is not a solo battle. That he has allies with him in this story. He's relying on allies. And I, I just noticed this in the text, that uh, people seized his traveling companions, and Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Now, there's just something I notice in this detail in this story. It's not the main point of the sermon, but it's a peripheral point that I just want to highlight today. That Paul and his companions are not alone in this battle. That Paul is willing to actually risk his life for his travel companions by stepping into the angry mob. And I just wonder, do we have some friends like Paul that aren't fair-weather friends, those companions who are willing to step into those places of battle with us so that we are not alone as we fight off these counterfeit gods. And then I notice that Paul himself has people that are looking out for him and saying, Paul, this isn't the right time. They, give him, they speak wisdom into his life and say, you're not going to actually make things better here. You need to pull back. Do we have people that can speak wisdom into our life and tell us when to move forward and when to hold back? Our battle with these strong attachments in our life is something that we cannot wage by ourselves. I was reminded again in my study this week how often the command one another shows up in the New Testament. There are 100 one another commands in the New Testament, which says something to me. It says that we are meant to battle uh, our spiritual journey with one another. It says, love one another, admonish one another, confess your sins to one another, encourage one another. It's all over the New Testament that we fight these battles together. That's what they do when you join an AA, right? They put you in a group and give you a sponsor. And I think in our own battles, we need that. We need that support. And I want to encourage us right now to to realize that this is something that we might need to rebuild in our spiritual journey. We've been in a year where it's been disruptive. Community has been disrupted. And I I just want to encourage us to not see this as an opportunity to just slowly drift away. 
Because, friends, the, the Christian life is not something that we are meant to do alone. You might picture how a fire stays kindled. If you pull a log apart, it slowly, slowly burns out. But Christian community is about coming together so that we can ignite that passion for God, support one another, keep the flame of our spiritual life going. So who are those people that you can rely on, those allies that are with you in the various battles you are waging right now? In the previous chapter, Paul has a a vision where where God speaks to him. And it's uh, if you have a a Bible that highlights the letters of Jesus in red, this is this one little red dot in the book of Acts, in the middle of Acts, which, which says this has some value. This is ascribed to the very words of Christ which were spoken to Paul. And it was right before he faced all these types of battles. And this is what, what the Lord said to him. Do not be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm me because I have many people in this city. Do not be afraid, Paul, for I am with you, and you have allies all throughout the city. And so, friends, who are your allies that are going to walk with you as you seek to say no to the things that seek to entangle and destroy and turn to the God who offers true life? We need friends in the city. But the main point I want to leave us with. The gospel message I want to proclaim is actually in the first part of this word that is given to Paul. Do not be afraid, not just because you have allies in the city, but notice what he, Jesus says at first, for I myself am with you. I myself am with you. This is the good news I want to lift up for us today, that when we step into these various battles, God himself has promised to be a very present help in trouble. I want to just remind us that these battles that we are facing, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, friends, but against rulers and against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil, which tells us that we need something beyond just ourselves and some good friends. (laughs) We need that. But we need something more. We need Christ with us. And so as I read this story, it's caused me to to look back to another book that Luke wrote. Before writing Acts, he also wrote his Gospel. And there's a very similar scene at the end of the Gospel. There's another angry mob that is confronting the way of Jesus, but this time the main figure in the story is not Paul, but it is Jesus. And while Paul was held back from stepping into the fray in the other story that Luke tells, Jesus stepped in to the center of the angry mob. And he was arrested and he was beaten. And they put a crown on his head. And they hoisted a sign that mocked him, saying, look at this weak king who is dying on a cross. And they thought they had defeated Jesus. Three days later, we see that Jesus 
rose up victorious over these powers, these false gods, these spiritual forces that seek to disrupt and destroy, such that Paul, as he later reflects on that story, would say in Colossians that having disarmed the power and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so in our battle with these things that sometimes feel like they have such a strong grip on our society and such a strong grip on our soul, let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us turn to him and remember that he is more powerful than these forces that we are up against. Do not be afraid. Why? For I am with you. And that you have many allies in this city. I mentioned last week that the ability to, to dismantle idols isn't just about cutting down the idol. We actually have to replace the false gods with the true God because we all need something to trust. We all need to be loved. We all need something to empower us. And the way of dismantling the idol is by discovering how Jesus is more better, is better than those idols that we turn to. And so I want to draw our attention to Luke's first story and meditate on what Christ has done for us on the cross because there's a couple of things that happen when we begin to meditate on the story. First, we discover a beautiful God who so loved us that he was willing to suffer and die on the cross. And as that captures our heart, I believe that begins to replace the other things that, turn, that we turn to that have a grip on our hearts. But there's something else that meditating on this story does. It reminds us that we have power to overcome the idols in our lives. So I want to encourage us to take heart knowing that this battle we face is something we do not face alone. I want to leave you with a powerful quote. I've probably said it before. I'll say it again from Martin Luther. But remember, friends... We face together a defeated devil in the company of a conquering Christ. May that hearten us as we seek to follow the way of Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your scripture that just warns us of the, the false gods that just break our hearts and disrupt our society. Lord, we want to turn to you. We ask that you would meet us where we're at. You would encourage us. You'd surround us with allies. And you would help us to discover again the hope that you are more powerful than the things that we are overwhelmed by. We pray this in your name. Amen.